When he was ruling on the throne, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to Jehoiakim. And he prophesied detailing how Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the instrument against his life if he didn't repent. Well, he ignores what the prophet Jeremiah does, says. In fact, he ignores it so much, he basically takes his penknife, cuts the scroll up, and burns it in fire. He has a contempt for the Word of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, we start a new book of the Bible, the book of Daniel. Daniel has been called by some the revelation of the Old Testament because it contains so much prophecy. So let's jump right into this exciting book and find out about the man, the mission, and the visions of Daniel. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, which is often called the revelation of the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms, which is dead center, and scan a little bit to the right. Right after the prophet Ezekiel, you will come to the prophet Daniel. I think you will be challenged by this study of Daniel because he's a man indeed for all seasons. He's a man who will model for us morally, spiritually, and ethically how to stand strong in a culture that is becoming more and more and more pagan. He's a model of integrity, a man who never compromises his convictions. And unlike many of his great forefathers, like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David. Daniel is a man of whom nothing negative is ever written, not a single word of criticism. He's linked with Joseph and Joshua and Samuel and Nehemiah. He's an amazing prophet. He's the prophet of the end time and he's the prophet of the meantime. He's going to look down the corridors of history to the last of the last days and he's going to give us a picture of what to expect but he's also the prophet of the meantime and that he's going to show us how to live in those days. He's going to show us by his own life and the lives of his companions how we can stand strong in a culture that hates God. Now key to understanding the book of Revelation, a book that everyone seemingly wants to read, is to understand the prophet Daniel. When we come to Revelation, and I plan to teach them by God's grace back to back. When we come to Revelation, we're going to see there are four approaches to Revelation, three that are totally erroneous. And the reason they are in error is because they don't understand what Daniel said. And so critical to understanding the Revelation is to understand the prophet Daniel. That's true to understanding Ezekiel or Isaiah in the prophetic portions in those books and certainly other passages like the Olivet Discourse. And so as we come to this book, I hope you will ponder it, study it, meditate on it, and even review it in the days ahead. So as you can see in your bulletin, there is a note-taking outline, and I have three objectives for us today. Pull it out, if you will. Like Aristotle, who said, like archers, we will stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. I want to delineate the target that I want to aim at today. First, I want us to get an overview of the book. I want us to understand the big picture. Second, I want us to understand the historical background in which Daniel lived. And third, I want us to examine the first chapter of Daniel, which really serves as an introduction to the entire book. At least that way, if you fall asleep, you'll know where we are when you wake up, all right? So by way of introduction, let's begin with an overview of the, of the prophet's message. Let's get an overview. If you can get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details will begin to take on meaning. 
There's a chart there that you might want to fill in. If you read through Daniel over and over again, you will see there are two major divisions. Chapters 1 through 6 deals with Daniel and his personal friends, whereas the focus of chapters 7 through 12 deal with Daniel and his people's future. Now, when you come to chapters 1 through 6, you're going to discover it's largely historical with a little bit of prophecy sprinkled in. When we first meet Daniel here in the first chapter, he's about 15 years old. When we find him in chapter 6, the end of the historical section, we will see he's a man in his 80s. He's an old man. In the events, there are six major historical events that we will study in the first six chapters. They follow chronologically. When you come to chapters 7 through 12, you immediately notice there's a change in tone. Because 1 through 6 have been in the third person all the way through. When you come to chapter 7, it's expressed in the first person. And in both sections, be it the historical section, 1 through 6, or the prophecy section, 7 through 12, and that's the focus of the second half, prophecy, with a little bit of history sprinkled in. And I need to say that we will see that a lot of the prophecy section will overlay the historical section. Now we'll show you where those two sections are concurrent as we work through it. All right? Now I also need to say, by way of an aside here, that the book of Daniel is a book that the critics love to tear apart. Next to the book of Genesis, the book of Daniel is the most attacked book in all of the Bible. And they attack it for a number of reasons. Number one, they don't like the supernatural. And of course, Paul tells us that an unregenerate natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so whenever there are miracles in the Bible, a man who hates God and is opposed to God will write those off. But there's a second reason why they don't like Daniel and love to attack it, and it's because of its prophetic nature. Now, I have in my library a book called The Prophecies of Nostradamus. He was supposedly a 16th century seer. And he wrote hundreds of prophecies. If you've read the book, it's vague. Uh, the so-called prophecies that he writes could apply to dozens and dozens of given situations. And many of the prophecies he writes, even if you say it applies to such and such, were never fulfilled. In fact, were contradicted. He is what the Bible would call a false prophet. And the prophecies and the nature of what he writes is no different from the modern-day horoscope. Something you shouldn't read. God calls it detestable. Hope you don't read the daily horoscope. But the horoscope, for the most part, is so vague it could apply to a million things. But when we come to a prophet like Daniel, we're going to see a high degree of specificity in all of his prophecies. In fact, one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible is found in the prophet Daniel when he is praying a prayer and pouring his heart out to God and the angel Gabriel comes and interrupts him and gives him a prophecy that is absolutely astounding. Many times people will say to me, well pastor everything you've said is from the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible more than the book of Mormon or the Quran or some other religious book? Well you're going to have your answer by the time we're done with Daniel. Yes, Daniel was written by fallible, fallen, sinful men. But men who wrote infallibly 
who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Peter's words, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the prophecies in this book that have already been fulfilled are going to blow your mind in light of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And so, two big sections, Daniel and his personal friends, Daniel and his personal future. First section, history, a little prophecy in there. Second section, prophecy, a little bit of history in there. Now, that's the overview. Let's go beyond the big picture and let's talk about the historical background of Daniel's day. Now, I know for many of you, history was not your favorite subject in school and maybe is not if you're a student currently. And I hope you're still a student. I hope you never stop learning. But you need to understand the historical setting of the Old Testament. If I were to take many of your Bibles, I would discover that the clean section of your Bible is the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of the Proverbs and the Psalms. And the reason is, is many of us are intimidated by the Old Testament. So you have great intentions to read through the Bible in a year, and you come to Leviticus, the pots and pans division, and you quit. Why? Because we can't put it together historically. And so it's very important when you read the Old Testament, you understand where they are in God's history in dealing with His people. So let me give you some broad scope here today. You're not going to get it in one sermon. You might want to go back and listen to it, think your way through it. But remember, of course, the nation of Israel was founded through a man by the name of Abram, later changed to Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, had two sons. You remember his two sons? He had the son of promise, and he had the son of the bondwoman. One was named Isaac. Remember Isaac? He's the son of promise. Isaac, of course, has two sons, one of whom is the son of promise, and the other is not, Jacob and Esau. So you've got Isaac, and you've got uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, of course, his name is later changed to what? Israel. Good. Very good. His name is changed to Israel. And so he has 12 children, just like Ishmael has 12 children, Abraham's second son, who form the 12, 12 tribes that become the 12 Arab nations that we have today, who are forever opposed against the people of Israel. Well, Jacob has 12 sons. They make the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He is renamed Israel. And so throughout the Old Testament, God will refer to his people in a general way as the children of of Israel. And as God had prophesied to uh, Abraham, his people end up down in a place called Egypt. They go there initially because of a severe famine in the land. And God in his providence raises up one of Jacob's sons by the name of Joseph, who rises to the position of prime minister, and God preserves the nation and other peoples through this man, Joseph. Joseph dies, and a Pharaoh comes on the throne who does not know Joseph. And so, as God had said to Abraham, they ended up in bondage for some 400 years. After the 400 years of bondage, God raises up a man by the name of Moses, who leads the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. He dies, and then God raises up another person by the name of Joshua, who leads them into the promised land. Joshua gives a fantastic, powerful sermon warning the people just before he dies. He dies, and in one generation, degeneration takes place. And they ignore the warning of God through Joshua, and they give themselves over to the idols of the land. And so you have the book of Judges. 
this time of up and down is they look around and they see the peoples in the land. They want a king like the other peoples desire. And so God gives them the desires of their heart and you enter into the period of the kingdom or the period of the monarchy. The kingdom, all 12 tribes are united from 1051 BC to 931 BC under the three greatest of all of Israel's kings, SDS, Saul, David, Solomon. How long does each reign? 40 years. It's really easy. 120 years, the kingdom is united. Solomon, of course, compromises himself, but for the sake of his father, David, God doesn't split the kingdom under Solomon. He said, because of the special relationship that David and I have, I won't allow that to happen until your son steps on the throne. And so we read in 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon did what God told him not to do. He loved many foreign women. And so his heart was drawn away into the idolatry of the nations around him. And so we read in 1 Kings 11 and verse 4, for it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father had been. Now let me just say something in passing. You cannot take the clear teachings of the Word of God, set them aside, and live without consequences. You cannot walk the wire of one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You will pay the consequences of that. Now, as you can see on this map, the kingdom divides because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And because of the pig-headedness and greed of Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. And so there's a divided kingdom for 345 years. The 10 northern tribes are called Israel, all right? Now remember, up till that time, they are generally all called the children of Israel. And occasionally, they are still called both tribes the children of Israel. But for the most part, after the kingdom divides, the 10 northern tribes are called Israel. They're also called Ephraim after the most influential tribe. One occasion they're called the house of Joseph. and another occasion they're called Israel of Samaria. They have 20 kings in the north. Everyone is wicked. They go on for a period of time until 722 B.C. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet telling them to repent, to get their hearts right, but they ignore what God says through his men. And so God uses the Assyrian people as an instrument and they come down and they carry away the 10 tribes and they go into a time of deportation. Now, some people talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They weren't lost. And it's sheer nonsense what some of our British brothers came up with about 100 years ago, what they call British Israelism. No, they were not lost at all. In either case, the two southern tribes continue. The two southern tribes are called Judah. Israel has as their capital the northern kingdom, Samaria. And so when Jesus comes to a woman at the well, there is a debate over what's the best place to worship the place where the northern apostate people worship or where the pious Jew worshiped, even the ten tribes, come down into Jerusalem and worship as God had dictated. And I say they're not lost because you step into the New Testament, you've got a, like, a guy like Paul who's from what tribe? Tribe of Benjamin. You've got someone by the name of Anna who's from the tribe of Asher. They weren't lost at all. 
But they worshipped in Samaria, the southern tribes, uh, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, named after the larger of the two. Their capital was Jerusalem. They continue for another 136 years. God sends prophet after prophet, warns them, repent, get your heart right. They don't listen. So God sends now the Babylonians. By this time, they had overthrown the Assyrian Empire. And the major world power is the Babylonians. They come down and they carry away the Jewish people into Babylon. It's real easy to remember. I comes before J, A comes before B. Israel is carried away by the Assyrians. Judah is carried away by the Babylonians. All right, let's try to keep that straight if we can. So Daniel is a part of the southern kingdom. And it is at this time when they come down from the north, the Babylonian, that Daniel and his friends are carried away. Now, the reason, again, the Old Testament is a closed book for so many of us is because we can't put it together historically. But if you come to any Old Testament prophet, and there are 17 prophets in the Old Testament, if you simply ask at what time in Israel's history did this prophet serve and minister, the prophet will come alive for you. Was he a pre-exilic prophet? Was he an exilic prophet like Daniel, or was he a post-exilic prophet? The pre-exilic prophets preach either to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or both. The exilic prophets, and there's just two, and their books are side by side, Ezekiel and Daniel. They preach during the time of the exile. The post-exilic prophets, after they're brought back into the land of Jerusalem, there's just three, and those three books come right at the end of your Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So if you stop and ask, where is this prophet preaching? To whom is he preaching? Then you will begin to understand. Now, as to when in Israel's history Daniel ministered, the key is in the opening verse. Look at verse 1 of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that's what we just studied in our background. This verse signals the beginning stages of the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom. Look at verse 2. We learn Jehoiakim is king, and we're told the Lord. And if you remember, in your English Bible, there's two ways in the Old Testament that the word Lord is spelled. There's capital L, small letter O-R-D, which is the Hebrew word Adonai. And then there's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D as distinguished in the New Testament. And that tells you that it's not the Hebrew word Adonai, but the word Yahweh. Which word is this? Don't look at me, look at your text. It's capital L, small letter O-R-D, which tells you this is Adonai. Why is that significant? Because the name Adonai speaks of God as sovereign Lord, that He is over all things. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into His hand. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may have thought that he was conquering all on his own. But under the sovereignty of God, a theme that runs all the way through the book of Daniel, whether it's God's sovereignty in Daniel and the lives of his three friends, whether it's God's sovereignty over the Gentile nations, whether it's God's sovereignty over the people of Israel, 
we will see God is sovereign and God in his sovereignty gave Jehoiakim king of Judah along with some of the vessels. And the specificity of the word of God, you will appreciate so much. Not all of the vessels, but just some of them. We're going to see the rest of them are taken under his son Jehoiachin. So some of the vessels, those precious instruments in the temple, were taken and brought into the land of Shinar. Where's Shinar? Think of Babylon as the city and think of Shinar as the county. So Shinar is mentioned seven times in the Old Testament and it's describing the land of Babylon. So he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And who's ruling? Jehoiakim. Remember, 20 kings in the southern kingdom. Eight are righteous, 12 are evil. Jehoiakim is one of the worst kings in the southern kingdom. You might want to put out in the margin next to this, 2 Kings 23.32. 2 Kings 23.32. God gives a summary of Jehoiakim's life, and he writes that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When he was ruling on the throne, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to Jehoiakim. And he prophesied detailing how Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the instrument against his life if he didn't repent. Well, he ignores what the prophet Jeremiah does, says. In fact, he ignores it so much, he basically takes his penknife, cuts the scroll up, and burns it in fire. He has a contempt for the word of God. And when his life is over, the Bible says he has the burial of a donkey. His body was thrown over the wall of the city into what today we would call the Valley of Gehenna. It was the dumping ground, and he has not a king's burial, but a donkey's burial. And what he did really is no different today than some scholars, some theologians, some pastors who approach the Word of God with what we call higher criticism. They say, well, there wasn't one author of Isaiah, there were three. And so when you hear some guy talking about Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah, you know he's a liberal and he has a contempt for the Word of God. When they talk about five different authors in the Torah, J-E-P-D, you know that person has a contempt for the Word of God. And so you have these critics of the Word of God, and again, they will criticize and tear apart Daniel because of the specificity of his prophecies. And what will they do? They will say he had to have written after the fact that he's writing history, not prophecy. Jesus calls him not Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. And we will see even with the position they take, as late as they date this letter, there is still prophecy that is fulfilled, but they in their ignorance missed it. There's a supernatural dimension to the Word of God. And some people don't like it. Listen, there's no prophecy in the Hindu Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Muslim Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Only the Bible, the Word of God, because God alone knows the future. And so they don't like it, and they cut up the Word of God and burn it in their minds, either because of its prophetic nature or its miraculous nature. And I would hate to stand before the living God, having compromised what God said because I didn't like it. And so now we have two Presbyterian churches in our town that say homosexual marriage is okay, and a Baptist church where the pastor won't take a position. I don't want to take a position because it's too, too controversial. 
He's taken his position. I would hate to stand before the living God, not having preached the word of God as the inerrant, authoritative, inspired word of God. But that's what this arrogant king Jehoiakim did that he was guilty of. Now, you have to understand, as you can see on this chart, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes to deal with the Jewish people, does so in three phases. He first comes down, as the chart shows, in 605 B.C., when he carries away Jehoiakim and took some of the golden vessels out of the temple. Now, at that time, he takes Daniel and his three friends. So Daniel and his three friends are carried away in 605 B.C. When he comes down, he's not King Nebuchadnezzar. He's General Nebuchadnezzar. And his father is the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And while he is seizing the city, he discovers that his daddy dies. So he makes a deal with the Jewish people, and he puts a, a vassal king there under his thumb, and he takes some hostages for security, and that's when Daniel and his three friends come. And by the way, as you read the opening verses of the book right before Daniel, Ezekiel, you discover that Ezekiel the prophet is also taken during this time. So Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. A second time, he comes down in 597 B.C. And of course, the city is seized. Uh, and at this point, he takes 10,000 Jews, including uh, uh, this king's son, Jehoiachin, who becomes very important in the Bible. He's called by a couple of different names. But God puts a curse on Jehoiachin. And he says that no king out of, is going to come out of his lineage that God will bless. And of course, uh, that becomes critical when we come to the virgin birth. Lay that aside, that's another sermon. The third siege finally comes when he has this guy Zedekiah, who is a vassal king appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes down and Zedekiah thinks, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this guy. And he doesn't put up with it. And he plucks his eyes out. Now, the prophet Ezekiel said that Zedekiah was going to go to the land of Babylon, but he wouldn't see it. And God fulfills it precisely. You discover that Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless king, likes to take off people's heads, likes to pluck out eyes. And another prophet says he likes to roast his generals who failed him. Not a nice guy, but God has great plans. And if he can save a Nebuchadnezzar, which we will see, he can save absolutely anyone. Nebuchadnezzar was a horrible individual with no regard for life. Actually, no regard for anything but his own kingdom and ultimately himself. But God. It seems so often we see those two words, but God. And what God will do in the life of Nebuchadnezzar will astound you just as it astounded the people of Babylon. To listen again to today's introduction to the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN01. Today's program was entitled, Daniel, A Man of Competence. We've just begun this new series in Daniel, so make it a point to tune in again to learn more about this godly man and the visions he was given when we continue our study of Daniel and search the scriptures.